When I trace the moments of spiritual impact in my life as a Christian, there's a common denominator. Those moments of deep growth and impact spiritually have been centered on God's Word. So in May 2001, when I was finishing my sophomore year in college, I was invited to a retreat through a campus ministry. And there at that retreat, we just studied the book of Mark all week long. Had recreation time, fellowship time, but largely it was, was grounded in God's Word. And I remember opening to Mark chapter 5, the story of the woman who bleeds for 12 years, spends all that she has to no avail. 12 years of suffering alleviated one afternoon when she sees Christ walking through a crowd of people and knows in her heart that if she just touches the hem of his garment, she's going to be made well. And she makes her way. She reaches out in faith, risking ostracism, criticism. She touches because she believes that that man can restore her. And I remember going out into a rocking chair after that study, being so touched by the tenderness of Jesus, who would work in that woman's life, being so impacted by her resolute faith when I felt like I was sort of this buoy tossed about by the waves of the sea, not knowing where I stood with Jesus, believing one day, not believing the next, just wanting to have surety, and just asking, Lord, I I desire faith like that woman to know, to know where I stand with you, to know your goodness and your tenderness. It was May 2001. Three years later, March 2004, discerning what I thought was this prodding to, to, to be a pastor. I was scared of that. Selfishly, I always equated pastoring with poverty, and I didn't, I didn't want to be poor. And I also was a shy person. The thought of getting up and doing what I'm doing right now terrified me. And so I was running from this calling, running from this prodding. And one day, opening up to 2 Timothy chapter 1, hearing Paul pour into his understudy, his mentee, young Timothy, who's struggling to pastor a church in Ephesus. Timothy, who struggled with timidity and fear. Paul says to him, fan into flame the gift of God that I know is in you, Timothy, because I was there when the council of elders laid hands on you, and I saw it. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of self-discipline. I was just shot to the heart. Lord, I'm not fanning into flame my gifts. I'm trying to pour water on them. And I said, I'm done running from this calling. I'm going to do it. The common denominator, God using his word to impact me spiritually. How has God worked in your life through his word? What have been the moments in your spiritual journey when he has clearly impacted, clearly intervened you, and how has he used his word? What passages come to mind? What passage is he currently using in your life to grow you, to stretch you, to sustain you? God works in this world through his word. From Genesis to Revelation, advances, his work advances through his word. From creation, Genesis chapter 1, to the new creation, Revelation 21. It's his word doing the work. From the calling of Abraham, Genesis 12, to his 
encouragement and accountability to the seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3. It's his word doing the work. God works through his word. I want to explore with you this morning how God works through his word from Ezra chapter 5. So let's turn in our Bibles to Ezra chapter 5. In the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find Ezra 5 on page 392. We'll have the text projected as well, but feel free to open there as well. Ezra 5, page 392. If you're here today and you need a copy of the scripture, we'd love to give you one. I mention this every Sunday in the lobby. There are hardback black Bibles. Please take one if you need one. If you have a friend who would like one, that's a gift. Go ahead and take those. So this morning we're continuing in our sermon series this fall in Ezra. And the title of that series is Return from Exile. Return from Exile. So let's read Ezra chapter 5. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God, the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to build the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shathar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on them, was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shathar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that the house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazzar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels and go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building, and it is not yet finished. 
Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives that are in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. My goal in this sermon is to increase our collective confidence in the fact that God works through his word. There are all kinds of things that you can be allured to as a Christian, novel things, but what I want to convince us of is the age-old thing, the timeless truths of Scripture that throughout the generations have proven effective to accomplish God's work. I want to increase our confidence in the power of God to work through his word in your life and in the lives of the people all around you. God works through his word. We'll structure our time in two parts. First, we see people reinvigorated by the word. See this in verses 1 through 5. People reinvigorated by God's word. And then in the rest of the chapter, we see the ongoing evidence of God's word at work. Ongoing evidence of God's word at work. We see that in 6 through 17. Why were the returned exiles in need of spiritual invigoration? Why did they need this encouragement through God's word? Well, we discussed this last Sunday. In Ezra chapter 4, we see all kinds, all manner of opposition come against God's people. If you weren't able to, to, to join us, let me just review a little bit. In Ezra chapters 1, 2, and 3, we see all kinds of good news. The decree of Cyrus is released in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, the list of returned exiles, they're actually going back to their homeland. And then in chapter 3, the work begins, the altar is rebuilt, they're now able to offer sacrifices, and the temple foundations are laid, and then you hit chapter 4, and it's bad news. Opposition arises, and the work ceases. This is what we read of this opposition, Ezra 4, verses 4 and 5. Then the people of the land, the people who had been there, as the others were exiled, just the, the, the resettled people of the land, not Israelites, discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Opposition arises against the returnees who were rebuilding the temple of the Lord. And then in verse 24, the very end of Ezra chapter 4, we read of the outcome of this opposition. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It ceased for roughly 15 years. That work had started in 535 B.C., and it didn't pick up again in earnest until 520 B.C. That's the second year of Darius. So 15 years, no work on the temple. And we read in the prophet Haggai that the people got preoccupied with building their own homes and going about their way of life. Opposition subsided somewhat, but they didn't return to the building. They, they kind of grew spiritually stagnant, preoccupied, distracted by other pursuits, didn't they? 
And so what does God do to reinvigorate his people now living in their homeland but without a temple? What does he do? He sends them his word. That's what he does. He sends them his word. Let's look together at verses 1 and 2. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And just observe what happens in these beautiful two verses. God's spokesmen, his messengers, the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, jumpstart the people of God by communicating the word of God. That's what we see here. Spiritually stagnant people have spiritual vitality through the word delivered to them. And they speak to the returned exiles, notice, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Very important. They speak to these returned exiles in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. What does that mean? Who had authority over them who is the sovereign one whom they belong to. And so they're hearing a message from their sovereign king who's encouraging them and, in fact, redirecting them to get started. The author of Ezra is highlighting who's in charge, who holds the authority, who has the power, and whom we're accountable to. It is the God of Israel who is over them. You see, God loves his people too much to leave them in a state of spiritual stagnancy. God loved his people too much to allow them to continue the pathway of complacency. He intervened. He intervened graciously through his word delivered to them. This is how God works. He loves us too much to leave us in a state of spiritual stagnancy, complacency, Friend, if you're here today and you're hearing me preach, know that it is an expression of God's love for you. He loves you enough to provide a means for you to hear his word spoken to you. That's a way to reinvigorate your heart. No matter what you've been through this past week, we have an opportunity to gather around God's word through a time of singing, fellowship, and preaching, to be reinvigorated, to be encouraged, to experience his tenderness and his grace and to be sent out to serve him for another week. God loves us too much to leave us in a state of spiritual stagnancy. How does he stir us back up? How does he invigorate us? Through his word delivered to us. Well, how do God's people respond? How do they respond to the, the message of the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah? Well, notice in verse 2, their response is immediate and it is vigorous. There's an immediacy to what they do. Verse 2, then Zerubbabel, who was the governor among the returned exiles, and then Jeshua, who was the priest, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. It's just immediate. The prophets speak and the people move. They re-engage in that building effort. And notice here, it's leaders who lead the way. It's just a picture a subtle picture 
of leaders responding to the word and moving outward, and then people follow them. We need faithful leaders in the church, don't we? Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. We all, as disciples, need to be following faithful leaders, people who are invested in us. The way that that works in our church, we, we have people called elders that God gifts to the church, and we desire to, to lead well. Here at Beacon, we, we have three of them currently, myself, Dylan Colley, and Dave Raffensperger. We are imperfect, but we desire to follow Jesus well and to model for you all, God's precious people, what it means to follow Christ, to, to use our gifts, to be equipped for the work that he has for us. See, just a picture of faithful leaders engaging in the work, and then the people follow. Now, once the work restarts, does God's word cease? What do you see here? Notice what the author of Ezra is careful to communicate with us at the end of verse 2. Zerubbabel, Jeshua, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And here we go, very important. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So God jumpstarts them with a prophetic message, and then he continues to encourage those construction workers, those builders, with his word thereafter. He continues to sustain them with his word. The prophets remain with them, supporting them in the long and difficult days, weeks, months, and years of rebuilding. The prophets are there, communicating God's faithful word to encourage those people who will get discouraged again. And such it is in the Christian life. If you're here today and you are a Christian, it is because God has met you through his word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Somehow you've encountered Christ through the message of a friend, through a Bible study, through a church service, through a retreat, through a camp. You've encountered him through his word, but he doesn't leave you alone there. He continues to surround you and encourage you leaving you with a witness, a local church, a Bible, a friend to continue you on the path. He doesn't leave us alone after our salvation. He continues to work in us along the path of growth and sanctification following him. So our salvation begins with the word of God and our growth thereafter continues with the word of God. God jump-started his people with a prophetic message and he continued to encourage them with the prophets who remained with them. He's faithful. He's faithful. He intervenes and he sustains through his word. Reinvigorated by God's word. After God jumpstarts his people through his prophets, we see what initially may seem to be another round of opposition, don't we? What's going on here with this man named Tatanai, the, the governor in the province, the Persian province beyond the river? When you read beyond the river, you need to think the Euphrates River. That, that river in kind of the, the fertile crescent. I remember studying this in seventh grade history. In between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, that, that fertile crescent, just west of the Euphrates, that's the province beyond the river. That's, that's Judah, Syria, Palestine, the promised land. That's God's people's land right there. So when you read the province beyond the river, that's west of the Euphrates, that's the promised land where God's people were, were given that land. It seems to be opposition. Verse 3, let's read this. At the time 
Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shathar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building the building? Uh-oh, if you've read Ezra chapter 4, you're, you're, you're just bracing for another round of opposition. They're gathering up a list of names, and they're going to hand that over to the king, and then heads are going to roll. That's what, we, that's what we see. But actually, that's not what happens here. The governor actually isn't opposing the work. Rather, he's seeking the proper authorization for the work. He wants to know that they've had permission to do this rebuilding work. Evidently, he's come to power after King Cyrus gave the decree. So there's a new governor in town, Tatnai, who doesn't know the history. So he's just trying to do his job and see if these folks who are rebuilding have authorization to do so. Notice how he allows the work to continue while he does this investigation, while he tries to find the authorization. Verse 5, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them, that is Tatanai, the governor, the Persian governor who was positioned there to manage the affairs of that province, they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter. So they allowed them to continue to build and they just waited on, hey, is there authorization in the historical kingly archives? In the royal archives, is there permission from a prior king to do this work of rebuilding? Well, we're going to find that, yes, indeed there is. But he's allowing them to work all the while. So this, this governor is kind to them. It suggests that he is inclined to believe that the returned exiles do have authorization. So we see this picture of God's providence, a powerful picture of God's providence. Notice what we read here in verse 5. The eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them. This favor that they're receiving from Governor Tatanai is orchestrated by the Lord. It's the eye of the Lord who's on his people, watching over his people. God has set this work in motion through his word, and he will see it through to completion. That's the character of God. What he starts, he always finishes. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's the faithfulness of the Lord, his providence. Echo of Psalm 33 here, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. That's not a fear of trepidation. That's a reverent trust, reverent trust in the Lord. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Reverent trust, clinging to the Lord. The eye of the Lord is on those who rely on him. Well, in response to Governor Tatanai's questioning, the returned exiles present their case. They make a statement to him that he then records and sends on to King Darius. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is just unpack portions of their statement, their defense, their case, and see how we see spiritual vitality, evidence of God's work in and through them, continuing to work in and through them based on their, their defense, based on what they say. So I want to identify five pieces of evidence of God's ongoing work through his word in their, in their written response here. So first, the first piece of evidence is obedience. Their obedience. Verse 8, Governor Tatsunai says to King Darius in this letter, 
Be it known to the king that we want, that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, and it is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. So Governor Tatanai, notice he calls the God of Judah, the God of Israel, the great God. Don't be misled. That's not him professing his faith. He, he doesn't believe in God. It's a, it's a diplomatic, respectful title of the people's God in that land. We went there to the house of the great God, and it is being rebuilt with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. Now, you could just pass over this and not, not realize what's happening here. God's people are being careful to obey the Lord and build according to his instructions how the first temple was built. Huge stones and timber rebar in the walls. That's, that's what we see here. It's being, Tat and I just saying, this thing is huge. Big stones are being brought, and it's reinforced by cedar timbers in the walls. Well, where does that come from? It comes from 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 12. Solomon's temple, the prior temple, the great court had three courses of cut stone, massive stones all around, and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. They're building not in accordance with their own design. They're not making stuff up here. When they build, they obey. They're going back to how the previous temple was built, just like when Alex preached two weeks ago. Alex Grant, how did they rebuild the altar? They rebuilt the altar in accordance with the law of Moses. They're not getting creative. We get in trouble when we get spiritually creative. Just go back to the book. Go to the blueprint. It's all there, and it's good, and it's tried and true. Just stick with it. So they just go back to the book. They get the stones, and they get the timbers. They're just obeying God's word. Friends, obedience is a barometer of our spiritual health. How do you know how you're doing spiritually? One measure is just doing a little assessment of your heart's obedience. Now, I know when we talk about obedience, we get guilty. There's a good kind of guilt. All of us obey God imperfectly. As Christians, I mentioned this last week, we're on a pathway of growth and godliness. It's called sanctification. And we should, on that pathway, see ever-increasing measures of obedience. And there'll be some setbacks. But overall, the trajectory must be upwards towards Christ-likeness. And so obedience to God's word is a barometer of our spiritual health. It's a sign of a tender heart that seeks to obey God, that delights to obey God. Because obedience is an expression of, of our love for God. If you love me, you will obey my commands, says Jesus. So how would you say you are doing spiritually based on your measure of obedience? How would you assess your spiritual health this morning as you reflect on a week in your life of obedience? Another piece of evidence, resolve. Resolve. Ezra 5, verse 8, the latter half Tatanai says, this work goes on diligently, and it prospers in their hands. Notice there's a stick to There's a tenacity. There's a perseverance. They are building diligently. They continue on. Hand to the plow, diligence, hard work. They're not slowed. They're not slacking. They're, they're diligent. So they've been jump-started by God's word, and they continue diligently, empowered by God's 
word. So they exhibit this resolve, this perseverance. It's helpful to reflect on this in our lives today. Perseverance is a mark of true conversion. Those who've been truly saved by Jesus will continue until the end. Perseverance over the long haul is the grand mark of our salvation. It's a sign that we are indwelt by God's Spirit. His work of salvation is irreversible, and he's moving us forward, empowering us to persevere. Ongoing evidence of God's work, obedience, resolve, thirdly, boldness. Boldness. Tatanai says, We asked the name of these Jews for your information, O Darius, that we might write down the names of their leaders, and this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding this house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel, that is Solomon, built and finished. Tatanai is a, a Persian ruler, and his boss is the big, the big ruler, Darius, the emperor of the Persian Empire. These guys worship a pantheon of God, gods as the surrounding nations did, and nations before them did. Israel had an exclusive monotheistic faith. They believed in the one true living God, the God of heaven and earth. Not a pantheon of gods, one for the earth, one for heaven, one for the trees. No, no, they're unmistakable who they are servants of. He is the God of heaven and earth, the God of all creation. That's who they are. They're, they're unmistakable about their identity and who they worship. You go and tell that to the king. So they're not, they're not squishy here. They're not spineless. They're bold in proclaiming who they are. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. And the, the Persians worship all kinds of gods. We worship one God. They're bold. Boldly proclaim their faith in the one true living God. Boldness is evidence of God's work in your life. And you can't muster your own boldness. You, you, you must be empowered by God's word. As you read through the book of Acts, you see Christians, Paul, exhibiting great boldness. And just watch how that boldness is in conjunction with prayer and the word. Prayer and the word. You can't manufacture boldness in this life. You can't live boldly for Jesus on your own. You have to abide in God, in his word, and in prayer. Boldness is evidence of God at work in our lives, empowering us to live well, to witness well of Christ to a watching world. Obedience, resolve, boldness. Fourthly, honesty. Honesty. Verse 12. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven... He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. What are the people of Israel doing right here? They're acknowledging past failure. They're confessing. The reason we ended up in Babylon, the reason we were exiled in the first place, was because our forefathers turned their back on our God, angered the God of heaven, and as a just judgment, handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar. They're confessing. 
acknowledging the brokenness of their past. Brothers and sisters, confession of past failure is critical for present restoration. Confession of past failure is critical for present restoration. We must acknowledge our sin, our rebellion, our brokenness if we're ever going to make traction forward spiritually. They're just honest about their sin, about their, their past, about their forefathers. And they're being currently, presently renewed. Ongoing evidence of the word at work, obedience, resolve, boldness, honesty. One last one, remembrance. Remembrance. See this in verses 13 through 15. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels and go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. In this statement, those Israelite workers are clinging to the truth of Cyrus's decree. What you read here is a summary of what we read in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, when Cyrus gave the decree that the, the Israelite exiles could go back to their homeland. And not just go back, he was going to resource them too. He was going to take the pots and the pans, the vessels that were taken out of the temple in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon. He said, you guys take these back. They're yours, they're your instruments of worship, you take them. So he's providing for them, he's resourcing them. And these return exiles remember the decree of Cyrus that happened 20 years prior. They are remembering truth. And they're using it to confront their, their current questioning, aren't they? This is how it is. We have authorization. Cyrus made a decree 19, 20 years before. And they're clinging to that truth. They know what is right. They know what is true. They know that their God moved Cyrus to make that decree. So they have a remembrance of the truth. It's evidence of God at work in their lives. God working through his word, obedience, resolve, boldness, honesty, and remembrance. God works through his word. In this passage, he sends his prophets, doesn't he? But at the appointed time, God would send another prophet you read of this Hebrews chapter 1. The author of Hebrews writes, Long ago, and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Do you see what the author of Hebrews is saying? Everything God wants to communicate to you has been communicated through an enfleshed message. Everything that God wanted to communicate to you about your spiritual health and vitality and forgiveness and ongoing growth, 
has been communicated through his son. In the past, he spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Everything that we need has been communicated to us in the person and work of Christ. And this is, this is, the, this is the invitation, is to see and acknowledge that word made flesh, the enfleshed message that God has delivered to us through his son, that we would trust in him, we would turn to him, we would find our hope and our security in him. He provides us with everything we need for life and godliness. All of it communicated to us in Christ. My friend Ron is a member of the church that I prayed for this morning in Weymouth, Emmanuel Church. And every Sunday morning around about 6.30, as I'm studying, Ron sends me a text. And it's usually scripture, but sometimes it's a quote. It's just an encouragement based on God's word to help me as I prepare to lead a service and, and preach. Here's what he sent me this morning. He sent me a quote from an English pastor and an author in the 17th and 18th century, Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry writes this, What God requires of us, he himself works in us, or it is not done. What God requires of us, he himself works in us, or it is not done. He that commands faith, holiness, and love creates them by the power of his grace in us. Isn't that good news? All that God calls us to do, all the good things that he desires, he equips us to do. What he commands, he equips. And that grace, that equipping happens through his word as we surround ourselves with it, as we dwell upon it. Everything that we need for life and godliness, he has supplied to us in his word. I sometimes will flip through the channels late on a Sunday afternoon, and sometimes you see these infomercials selling the next new gadget or gimmickry, right? And it's amazing. You, know, you, you, you hit the website or, or call the toll-free number, and I'm asking myself, are people actually buying this stuff? Like, they're, they're always coming. So clearly there's a market for these. People are buying this stuff. And I think, does it, does it work? It's like the next novel gadget, the next gimmick. And then I got to thinking, how quickly we can be allured by the next gimmick in the Christian life or the next book that promises false hope. Friends, we just got to go back to the tried and true. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. I'm just pleading with you. Hold fast to the simplicity of the word of God. You don't have to make it complicated. You don't have to get creative. You have it already. It's a gold mine that you're living on, and sometimes it's untapped. Just go back to the word of God. It's eternal, and it is productive. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word works. If you're here 
and you don't know where you stand with Jesus, here's a little action step for you. Continue in God's word. If you don't have a Bible, we will give you one. We would love to read the Bible with you. Begin in the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest of all the Gospels, and it's action-packed. One episode to the next, you'll encounter Christ and his authority through it. Just read God's word. Read it together. Come on a Sunday and hear God's word preached. God accomplishes good things through his word. If you are a Christian, continue in the word. Keep reading. Keep gathering. Keep hearing. As the rain and the snow come down and accomplish the purposes for which it is sent, so is God's word that comes to us. It never returns empty. Praise God for his work through his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have graciously given us your holy word to read, to study, and to encounter you through. We thank you that in your word you describe your son who is the word made flesh, who came and dwelt among us, who lived perfectly for us, died sacrificially on, a gra- on the cross, and rose from the grave triumphantly. God, I pray that we would cling to this message and never let it go. I pray for some who are on the fence, not entirely sure where they stand, that you, by the power of your word, would draw them to you. Clarify for them what faith is and help them cross that threshold of belief in Christ. Give us opportunities this week to speak your word to one another, to encourage each other, and to hold out the truth of your word to those who are desperate for us in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.